Uh, I, th I think that every entrepreneur goes through three phases. If they're lucky, they get to the third phase. But the first phase is solopreneur, where you do everything yourself. You don't really trust anybody. And it's understandable because for us, that's our baby. You know, whatever, whatever it is that we built, whatever business it is, whether it be real estate or otherwise, that's our baby. And we don't just let anybody touch the baby. But then we get to the point where, you know, we're, we're overwhelmed, we're worn out. And then we get to that second phase. And uh, I call that the babysitting phase. We bring somebody on or sometimes more than one person, but we micromanage them. We need to know every little thing that's going on, every detail. Uh, oh, I, I want to know every single person that's late with rent. And, and you're dealing with things that you can't really control. And so, but that's just a trust issue. And then you get to the third phase and I call that the freedom phase. And if you can actually get to that phase where, you know, you have your team that's looking out for you. And of course you have to look out for them in return or they're not going to look out for you. But if you take really good care of the people on your team and incentivize it for them uh, and they're doing a good job, then you get your freedom to do whatever you want. And I'm luckily I've made it to that phase, but it takes a long time to get from even phase one to phase two, where you have to bring people on your team. But at some point you hit that brick wall. And if you don't have somebody else, you know, if you're already working 12 hours a day, you can't, you, you know, at some point you want to sleep and maybe have a relationship and maybe take care of your health and do other things besides just work, maybe even sleep. So um, at some point you hit that brick wall where you have no choice. You reluctantly go into that second phase, but it's very hard to go to the third phase because the third phase is not mandatory. The second phase is mandatory if you want to scale. Getting to that third phase isn't mandatory. You can stay in that second phase forever, but you're not going to be you're not going to have the lifestyle that you want. You're going to lose your time. Welcome to Rio Radio, episode 96 with Mike Wolf. You need a like howling sound effect. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> well, okay. Yeah, there, there we go. go. You're listening to Rio Radio, the nationally trusted name in real estate investing. We dig deep to discover investors' why in real estate. If you want to skip all the BS and get in investors' heads, you're in the right spot. Be one of the thousands to check out RioRadio.com. Guys, we had Mike Wolf here in town. Uh, he was referred to me from, a, from somebody in my networking group that uses him as a coach. And... Mike and I got chit-chatting back and forth, and I was like, dude, you got like, – I literally called him just to get him on the podcast. And then after talking to him and just being blown away, I was like, we got to get this guy in Omaha. And so Mike just spoke um, yesterday at our Omaha RIA and destroyed it, like killed it. Great content. Uh, just, I mean, great guy, great content. But his story is amazing. The fact that he's been – pretty much traveling out of a suitcase for the last eight to nine years solid is, is a story in its own. And that's going to blow you guys away. But the fact that he, uh, he had, he's coached over a thousand people. And speaking of the coaching side of it, while mm -hmm. he is in Omaha, David Bader shows up with his girlfriend and his girlfriend would use him as a coach. And she's, I think she's, was she originally from Mexico? Or, I don't know that I, I, she's in California now. I okay. know, uh, but she, uh, but she was using him so. as a coach and getting advice from him, and yeah. then and then she heard, then she's in town randomly, randomly, yeah. and and says, "Oh my gosh, Mike Wolf is in town! I we got to go to this event." Yeah, isn't that funny? Small world. 
But I mean, what do you guys think about Mike? I I thought he. I mean, he's he's a fun guy to have. I'm so glad we had him in studio. World Traveler has done more than most people will ever even read about in real estate investing. He's done some cool stuff that's different than a lot of other guests we've had on, like uh, tax liens and tax deeds. He's invested not just there, and like he's from Canada. So a lot of what another Canadian, yeah, another Canadian, this is becoming a Canadian podcast. And then he's done a lot of, uh, like tax lien and tax deed type transactions, but in Texas randomly and find out why in the episode. But, um, he's like literally a cross border investor and a lot of different things. And he is living out of a suitcase, man. That guy has got literally, literally. Yeah. He travels so much and he's been doing it for a long time and he has some great, systems and tips for for traveling uh, that I think you'll really enjoy and he just makes the most out of life man like he like he is living uh, a life that a lot of people aspire to that are that are in this I mean he's embracing the you know the single life well I remember one time in a conversation he's like uh, well I got my family up and my family's all in Canada my grandkid is in Canada he goes but I went to visit my daughter and at one point and she was like hey can you give me a ride to my boyfriend's house this is before she got married and he's like I didn't get the time that I wanted with her she just wanted a ride he goes but when but when I'm bringing her out to wherever I'm traveling to I get all the attention mm-hmm. and he goes so that's my work-life family life balance is I fly my I fly my kid and my grandkid out and, and the husband now to wherever I am so that I get all the attention and I do that a little bit more often and I traveling so much I can use the points. Mm. He mentioned that he uh, he went from where was he? Like he said he was in South America and then he was going up to Europe and he, and he did the whole trip for under $100 and uh, and he was sitting first class. <laughs> I still don't understand that even though he explained it, but yeah, that's uh yeah, it's just he's got so many Things that he knows over time that just by accident, stuff that falls out of his mouth is just going to be amazing content for for anybody listening to this. He's just yeah. fun. Like he's he's done so much for so long, and he's lived in so many different places and traveled to so many different places. I mean, like he's a one stop shop for just cool shit to know. Yeah, you know what I mean. And a great speaker. Yeah, yeah. He's just a just a cool guy. Like uh, I know Mike Wolf now, so <laughs> yeah, I feel I pretty cool. I'm in the cool kids club. I mean, one day in the future, Dennis, we might have to release that uh, his his speaking event that he did on the at the local RIA group. Yeah, that that that'll be more than doable. Yeah, that's good content. Yeah. What do you think about Mike? Um, so I wasn't there for the RIA meetup because I had something else that came up mm-hmm. that I had to take care of. But you but, were here for the podcast. But I was here for the <laughs> podcast, and I mean, th- there's something about people who coach and people who. At a, at a specific level in in their investment career and in their life that they just they just emanate a different kind of vibe and energy and the information that they speak about is not only beneficial on the investing side but also on the mindset and personal development side I love that about coaches and and top people that we interview and that's why you know like I from the time I, I started listening to him, I was like, this is going to be a good podcast. Just after I shook his hand and like I just got, yeah, this is going to be a good, a good podcast almost immediately. So, yeah, I was I was beyond impressed with, with his stuff. What I like about and to kind of piggyback on what you just said, too, is when you have somebody that's been doing it so long and they're accustomed to coaching and, and uh, getting information put simply 
into the other into the hands of other people. That's the key thing. Yep. He's able to break down pretty complicated stuff in a way where you can grasp onto it if you're even if you're not a real estate guru and know this business inside and out. So yep. he explains some pretty you know complicated terms and deals and, and ways he approaches things in a way that you get like you can just get the concept of it. And yeah, I, I agree with you though. And he's able to kind of like go up to talk about high level stuff and like, you know, mindset and personal growth and development, but he can also get down in the weeds if you want to. Like if you ask him details on like, how does a tax lien transaction work? He can explain that ad nauseum. Like there's, you know, like without missing a beat. So exactly. he just has one of those brains that operates. Like you can just go up a level or down a level, depending on what type of question you're being asked or who you're talking to. And that's, that is a hard skill to learn or, or, and I don't even know if it's learnable. I think you get better at it over time, but man, he's, he seems like a natural at it. Yeah. Cause it's, it's, it, when you do that, you can engage in a wider demographic of people. Yeah. You're not just only talking to the beginners and you're not just only talking to the super smart people or you're not just only talking to personal development, which in itself is an all-encompassing topic because whether you're super rich or super poor, you still have to work on yourself to get better, to be able to to be better. No? So personal development would always be something that, that would reach to the masses. You know? And kind of wrap this up, he also gets a lot into his team. Mm -hmm. uh, it is he isn't a one man team. He's got a lot of people around him, Wolfpack, and uh, and mm -hmm. a lot of VAs uh, that are doing a lot of work for him. Yeah, that's so. a good point, and that'll be something uh, if you're if you've ever kicked around hiring a virtual assistant, this would be a good episode to tune into to, to you know to find out a little bit more about how you how he approaches it. Yeah. So, well, Owen, last week you gave us a huge cliffhanger about your hills and valleys, <laughs> and, and and you were super down because you had your first loss. Well, not down. I'm I ate it. Like I'm fine. I'm I'm glad it's gone. But but, yeah. but you had it down, and now we want to bring us back up. So tell us tell us some positive stuff that's been going on. Oh my God, this. Uh, so I just had the largest profit of my entire career on a whole tail. Oh wow. Yeah, and I'm talking. This is not a Ted Koch hotel. <laughs> this is a. We bought it, we cleaned it out, cleaned it, and listed it the next day, and then we're now, you know, it's now now my largest profit. So I feel I even a little funny about saying this because it's so ridiculous. But I'm going to tell you the story anyway. Okay, so I have been over the last three weeks traveling literally nonstop. Like I've been to uh, WealthCon in Las Vegas. I went to Branson for a family trip. I went to Western Nebraska in the Sand Hills for a, a golf uh, charitable golf outing event with some other a couple other investors. And uh, so I've like just been burning the candle at both ends here. And this uh, house that we bought actually happened while I was gone. And my partner Brandon was in Italy, so we're both gone. And we signed our docs before we left, so it got closed. And I wanted to wait until it was closed before I ended up, uh, you know, like, quote unquote, bragging about this. It's not a brag. I just want to like, it kind of is. Brag it up. Yeah. You're celebrating a win, bro. Come on. So we got, we got an off market deal and it was in an area of Omaha that is very sought after. Um, I'm just going to leave a little bit vague. I don't want to name exactly the the house and whatever, but this is in, in and around kind of like Exarbon, but north of there, really, really uh, good area. A lot of Tudor style. Uh, all brick, a um, lot of affluence in that neighborhood. So a lot of people like living there. Um, we bought this house off market from a lady that was, um, she did, she just wanted an easy transaction. She was an empty nester. She wanted to move out of town to be uh, closer to whatever, whatever she had going on. She was divorced, super smart, normal, 
like, you know, it just, I'm only mentioning that because sometimes in this business, when you're dealing directly with sellers, sometimes people are like really motivated to sell because they're super stressed, mm -hmm. right? They could be getting foreclosed on. They had a spouse cheating on them. They, you know, like were in bad financial problems, whatever. So this is pretty run of the mill. She's just like, look, I know I can probably make more. Like, I don't, I don't need to make a killing more. I just want to sell it for a fair price, get out of town, do it easy. Like, here's the keys, have fun. So we're like, yeah, we can make that happen. Long, long short of it is, we bought the property for, I believe, four hundred two thousand. Okay, this is, um, and that's a little higher than what we normally buy. So typically, we operate in the uh, starter to move up level homes. Sometimes we'll get a little bit outside of that. In Omaha, Nebraska, you're probably looking at about about like two hundred fifty grand for uh, an exit price on a nice starter home in a good area. Would you agree with totally, that? Totally. Okay, so two hundred fifty k. So we bought this for four hundred two, right? We clean it out, clean it up. We had no idea. We we pulled comps on this and we had the after repair value at about 500 grand. That's where we thought, okay, that's where it's going to land. And this is a tricky one because you could do a $30,000 remodel on this and sell it probably because of the location. You could do a $75,000 remodel on this and like deck it out and and probably sell it for more and probably push the comps on it. It was a tricky one, you know. You don't know how much to do a, a cosmetic remodel like bling it out and do more, you know. So we were kind of like let's just put this on the market for a couple weeks as a wholesale and see what happens because it was just dated. Mm -hmm. Like the the basement had some cat pee smell in one of the bedrooms or whatever, and that was really the worst of it. But it was dated, you know, it probably needed you know, it needed a cosmetic remodel throughout, but this is a fairly decent sized house and it had a dormer upstairs, which comes into play in this story. And I'm gonna tell you why. So <clears throat> we clean it out, clean it. We spend 600 bucks on the clean out another, I think 300 ish on, uh, on the clean, uh, like a deep clean. So we're all in for less than a thousand. So we're in it, say like four Oh three. So I'm, I just get back, I think from Vegas, I believe Brandon's still gone. He's in Italy. So way different time, time zone change and, and, so forth. I'm getting, I'm texting back and forth with my agent. It's like nine o'clock at night. We listed on the first day we listed, we have six, I think six or eight showings and uh, we get an offer that comes in and she's, and I'm like fried from my trip. Like I'm adjusting to the time zone. I'm getting ready to go on the next trip and all this. And so she, I'm not, I'm point being, I'm not operating at optimal Owen levels for, for whatever that means. <laughs> um, so she's like, uh, Hey, hold on to your socks or whatever. Um, you know, we've got an offer and I'm like, all right, what is it? So we listed, we listed this thing for 469, which I thought was aggressive. Mm -hmm. Right. So we were, I was like, you know, if we can sell for 450, that's probably a good price as a wholesale. You know, we net it all out. I'll probably make, we'll probably make 35 grand on it after commissions mm -hmm. and everything. Okay. Follow me so far. Yeah, yeah. So she's like, okay, the offer is, and keep in mind, this is listed, listed for 469. She said the offer is five fifty, and it's as is with no inspections, conventional financing, so that there's going to be an appraisal on it. And I'm like, in my head, I heard four fifty, so I was like, we just listed it. It's twenty thousand dollars less offer. This would probably be fine, you know. But let's counter at four sixty or four sixty two or something like that. Is what I said. <laughs> So she, so I'm I'm trying to think I'm trying to just imagine what her reaction to getting my text back was like what a total complete moron that I am I, I I'm not realizing that this it's actually a hundred thousand dollars higher than this so I'm like let's counter 
at 460. She's like, um, this is a really, really good offer. An emphasis on really, really, right? And I'm like, okay, I guess. And so I look at it. I go, wait, what? <laughs> this is literally verbatim. I should probably read this thread. It'd be hilarious, but it would take me too long to find it. But I'm like, oh, my God. Oh my God, like 550,000. Are you freaking serious? And so I'm like, ex- you know, like hitting the button to accept wherever I can, like as fast as I can. And then Brandon's not chiming in because he's in freaking Italy, right? So I'm like, we're accepting. I don't care what he has to say. Take it, take it, take it, take it. And then what I don't take the time to do is think through the impact of the appraisal on this deal, right? So this totally could have fallen apart. Like they got an appraisal on it and it could have come in way low, like 460 or 450 or whatever. And then what? Then you have to negotiate with the buyer. They could back out of the deal. They could say, hey, we'll still buy it. But you got to eat the difference. They could eat the difference. Could be a split the difference, right? There's all these things that could happen. But I'm not thinking any of this. I'm just you're like, so oh my God, oh my God, take it, take it, take it. And I go, Brandon, you're going to totally have a, you know, Woody when you wake up here and uh, see all this. And... uh <laughs> So we accept, and then uh, we're just like waiting for this appraisal, right? Because Brandon, that's the first thing he says the next morning is not like, oh my God, this sounds great. Good job, guys. No, it's like, what about the appraisal with like three question marks? And I'm like, geez, man, you're such a buzzkill. But anyway, so I give him a hard time about that. But anyway, and then I was like, yeah, I thought of that after we already accepted or whatever. <laughs> and so long story longer, um, at the like two weeks later, we get the appraisal. Guess what the appraisal comes back at? 550. 500. Oh. Just like we thought it yeah. it was wor- going to be worth. So we're like, well, that sucks. I mean, cuz the first thing when you see when you hear that is you're like, well, we're going to have to eat it. I mean, the house isn't worth what they, you know what I mean? So what happened was evidently these buyers really 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 want to be in this area and they've had a whole bunch of crap fall through, right? So they wanted this house bad and they were going to bail on it, but they found that the upstairs like dormer all the way upstairs would add additional square footage that they really wanted. And so they're like thrilled. They're excited about this. They end up eating the entire difference. We didn't even ask. They didn't even ask us if we want, if we would participate in that. And I, you know, I'll leave it there. Like I wouldn't, I I cannot even tell you how freaking flabbergasted I was at this deal, and it closed yesterday. Wow! So what, do the math. What the I mean, like oh, there's God. commission. We gave a bonus to our agent, like as we should have. I mean, we made a lot of money on this, like well, well north of six figures, and it, and like yeah. it should not have gone that way. I I screwed up multiple things. The uh, I just, I'm flabbergasted. And so my point in all this is, aside from being really freaking excited about it and making up for my huge loss the week before, is you can still do these deals in this market. It just takes the right buyer. That's what's so freaking exciting about this business, you guys. Like any given day, you could wake up and make over $100,000 and not do and not do any really much work. You just need to know what you're doing. You got to have systems and processes in place to make this work. So I'm just saying, put yourself in the game because shit can happen that you have no idea might be able to. Like, so I'm I'm really pumped now. Like, I was really down on, <laughs> I was kind of down last week, and then now this week I'm like, oh my god, let's freaking go. You know what I mean? So 
Yeah. Quite the quite the roller coaster in my in my life lately. I, I can't believe their agent didn't unbelievable to have him negotiate or anything. I know didn't even ask didn't uh, even ask. What well, Hakamishan or Hiskamishan probably would have been nice too because sure Daya, you know yeah. So. But it was I guess in this instance, you know, we bought the house. We gave the seller a win, quote unquote. You know, because they wanted a simple transaction, they wanted they wanted it easy as is cash. We made it simple for them. Right, Here, give us the keys. We got the rest. We got you. She's out the door. We're like, we want to make obviously some margin on this, so let's try and wholetail it first. We got a buyer. They're thrilled. We're thrilled. Our agents thrilled. The buyers, yeah, the buyers agents thrilled. Happy. Like everybody's happy. Yeah. Now, yeah. So uh, I'm just, I, I'm just blown away by this. I can't, I still can't believe it came it, together. It, it's a crazy deal, but it's, it's yeah. Everybody's happy at the end. No one feels like they were burned or anything like that. So that, that was a good thing. Yeah. Uh, so just to peek back off of this, um, <laughs> I think with that we need to get into today's podcast with. Mike Wolf. This week's episode is brought to you by JM Real Estate Capital. Hi, it's Rob, JM Real Estate Capital. We're the money guys that you need to know for all your real estate investments. Talk to us. We can do what your local bank can't or won't do. We don't have millions. We have trillions with a T to lend. 844-WE-CLOSE or go online at jmrecapital.com. That's jmrecapital.com. JM Real Estate Capital, smart solutions for the real estate investor. So, Mike, do you just exist in a constant state of jet lag? I actually very rarely have jet lag. Really? Very rarely. So, you, we were talking before we hit record here that uh, you are basically in a perpetual state of travel. Uh, where have you been recently? Like the last two weeks, give us, or maybe a month, uh, what all of you, see if you can remember all of them. Well, actually, in the last month, I was in Spain. I've been, I was in London, I was in Iceland, I was in Norway, I was in Belgium, I was in Amsterdam, and then I was in California, and now I am here in beautiful Omaha. So <laughs> I think, I think it's fair to say your trips are starting to go <laughs> get a little worse but it, it, <laughs> or your destination. Actually, it's pretty cool here other than this, the rain today, but yeah, it's, it's actually a cool place. I like it. It's always good to go somewhere new. I tell you what though, we are in dire, dire need mm. of rain. Well, it I could have been... waited one more day. I'm just saying. But. I was so we. I I live on a lake. It's more of like a puddle right now. But uh, <laughs> our lake is down almost about four feet, uh, if not more. And I was uh, over the weekend. We have uh, like some paddle boards, right? Okay. You ever use those? They're kind of like surfboards. Not very just, well, but I've tried. Yeah, me either. <laughs> but my daughter and I went out, and uh, I went out like in the very middle of the lake, and it's like five feet deep. And okay. normally it's like ten or twelve. Mm. You know what I mean? I'm just like, wow, this is amazing though how dry it is here no diving yeah no diving so um world traveler mike wolf thank you for coming to town so we had uh last night uh ted hosted the omaha ria and you were a speaker there so um how did ted reach out to you and tell us how stalkerish he was when he approached you well he was stalkerish in a good way <laughs> in a good way you know I've, I've had bad stalkers he's not one of those it was a referral so yes we actually had a mutual friend and who introduced us. And then we had a jumped on the call and realized that we had a lot of synergies. And next thing you know, I got invited to speak in Omaha and here I am. Here we are. I actually reached out to you to just be on the podcast. Yes. Originally it was just to be on the podcast. Oh, okay. Right. All right. And then, and then that conversation kind of like, well, man, I go, it'd be really awesome. If you want to talk to our RIA group, maybe we can correlate doing both at the same time. 
and here, here Ted Sweet talked to you with some bourbon. <laughs> three, four, five months later, here we are. So it, it thanks, Jennifer Lee. <laughs> and, and then I found out he likes old fashions. I've never had one for breakfast before. Just well, record, hey, welcome to the podcast. Cheers, cheers. <laughs> Long distance, cheers. Um, Even Dentalist today, so, once a month, uh, he, he uh, partakes, and this must be the day. It's a special occasion for well, all. This is officially the earliest in the day I've ever had an old fashioned. I love it. And I'm kind of liking it. Yeah. I got <laughs> it's, it. it's our new thing. <laughs> We've actually probably had about six or seven old fashions in the last three we days. We have done our share. We have done our share. But that was our first, you know, that was my first impression. I, I landed. It was pretty late. It was midnight, midnight-ish. It was midnight-ish. Yeah. And, and he said, hey, well, there's some bars that are open. We should go have a drink. And then he ordered an old fashioned. And it's like, man, how'd you know I like old fashions? So anyway, we Everybody were off to a good start. So that's my kind of stalking. <laughs> so <laughs> awesome. Well, now you you have a wide ranging uh, amount of real estate experience across a lot of different disciplines within it and asset classes. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about this um, when I was listening to you talk last night because I I have lately kind of been struggling when people ask me what I do oh, for yeah, a living yeah. because I I have a few different you know real estate related businesses I've been involved in you know quite a few different things you're not quite at your level but um, enough to where I don't really know how to explain it <laughs> what is your if you're in an elevator with somebody and they ask you what you do how do you sum that up uh, for our listeners I, I just usually say I'm a real estate investor okay That's it. I just leave it at that because most people unless they're a real estate investor too they wouldn't understand the jargon anyway. Like if I said, oh, well, one of the things I specialize in is tax deeds, for example. Nobody knows what that is in in the general population. So if I'm talking with a bunch of investors, then I might go in a little bit more detail and talk about more, you know, some of the different strategies. But in general, I just say I'm a real estate investor. Leave it at that. Yeah. And typically people are like, huh. And well, then, then turn the, away from you and walk quickly. <laughs> well, they usually have a ton of questions because it's kind of a sexy career because they see these shows on TV and it looks so glamorous and they don't see all the, you know, all the crap that we put up with along the way. They see all the cool stuff. But yeah, it's kind of one of those glamorous things. It sounds a lot better than, hey, I'm an accountant or, hey, I sell insurance. Then you definitely get rid oh, of yeah, that, really Oh, yeah, that's quick. a quick way to get people exactly. out of the room. Exactly. So, or I'm yeah. a, you could just say, I'm a realtor. I'm yeah. Like, oh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> How's the market? <laughs> what do What do you say, Ted? Somebody asks you what you do. I I, I just uh, kind of say there's an array of different things that I do because I mean I, I go everything's involved. Oh, so they go oh drug dealer. Yes. <laughs> yes. I, I part time stalker. <laughs> I, I I say I do about six different things that all involve real estate investing. Okay. And does that generate more questions or people are like, cool, bro? Yeah, what are the six things? And I'm like, you know, podcasting, flipping, (laughs) so on, so on, so on. Yeah. Dennis, what do you say? Oh, boy. I suck at this really bad. (laughs) That's what he says. Yeah, Yeah, he does. He says he sucks at this really bad, man. (laughs) (laughs) So (laughs) I just, just, when people ask me, I'm like, I own a videography company, but I love doing performances. That's literally what it is, I see. You're a performer. Performances. Yeah, Yeah. performances. I'm sure that generates some questions. Of course. (laughs) When you go from that direction, yes, of course. Like Magic Mike type of performance? (laughs) Ah, Yeah. Yeah. Magic Dentalist. With with enough old fashions, maybe. (laughs) But it won't be magical. Hey, when we get video up and live, we'll uh, treat the the viewers and listeners to uh, some Magic Dentalist action. It won't be magical at all, I can tell you that for sure. Okay. All right. Back to business here. So, Mike, um, your first time in Omaha. It is. What's uh, and I know the weather hasn't really been great today. Although he did get a yes, top ten, top ten day yesterday. It was beautiful. Uh, so this is going to probably air. Let's see what late July, early August, something like that. But yeah. man, we had an awesome, awesome day so yesterday, nice. and uh, and not today. But we need the rain really bad, as we mentioned. 
Um, so you came and spoke at the RIA, and um, in your experience in real estate, why don't you just maybe, if you could, sum up how you got started and what led to where you are now, if that if that'd be all right. So yeah, our listeners sure. have an idea who you are, the all mysterious right. Mike Wolf. Well, it all started before you guys were born. Um, <laughs> no, I, I remember I, w- I was in high school. I was in grade 12, and I had no idea what I wanted to do the following year. I was like totally no idea. And my parents wanted me to be a lawyer. So I thought, well, they wanted me to be a doctor and lawyer was a second choice. And I'm, I'm scared of blood. So doctor wasn't going to happen. But you see these shows on TV and the lawyers always have these fancy offices with a bottle of bourbon and, and old fashions, drinking old fashions for breakfast. And I thought that looks kind of cool. This is the, we're almost lawyers. We're almost lawyers. We are kind of lawyers. We could give you legal advice, by the way. Uh, But um, so anyway, so by default, I decided I'm going to go to law school and after my first year of uh, student loans and racking up all this uh, debt, I decided, you know what, before I go get my second degree, I'm going to go pay this off. And so I got a job at the phone company. A buddy of mine, his mother was a manager there. It was government. It was union, paid really well. While I was there, I bought my very first home to live in because I had a very creative mortgage broker who helped me get a mortgage and I didn't have a down payment. So he helped me do that. And shortly after I moved into the property, he calls me up and goes, Mike, if you want, you're making good money. Your credit's good. I can get you another mortgage if you want to buy a second home. And I go, I'm like 23. I'm single. Why do I need a second home? And he, he uh, told me, you know, you put a tenant in there, they pay down your mortgage. In 25 years from now, it's paid off and that's your retirement. I go, that kind of makes sense. Every mortgage broker should be doing Every this. Every mortgage broker the, should be doing that. I mean, I, I, I've i never had a mortgage broker I've ever heard of like kind of trying to sell that. Yeah. yeah. It's like you want fries with that. Yeah. Would you like a second mortgage, well, that a second led, home? That, that led to a lot of more <laughs> mortgages down the road. But anyway, I said, okay, that makes sense. And so I did the only due diligence I knew at the time because being a real estate investor wasn't on my radar at all. And the only due diligence I knew is, okay, I want to get a pretty home and I want to get one that's close to me. So when I go collect rent, I don't have to drive very far. So that, that was my criteria. Anyway, I got really, really lucky because the home that I bought, uh, the market took off. The next two years, the market took off. And, and literally, I remember two and a half years after I bought that property, I remember sitting in my little cubicle at the phone company thinking, man, I've made this much at working for at this job that I don't love. I didn't hate it, but I didn't love it. And I made this much in real estate, and I don't even know what I'm doing in real estate. So what would happen if instead of doing this by mistake, I did it on purpose? And the rest was kind of history after that. Um, unfortunately, the next deal, you know, I was in my mid-20s at this point and got pretty cocky, pretty arrogant, because all of a sudden I have this money. I'm the smartest guy in the world. I'm the smart. I know everything <laughs> about real estate. And so you know, I did what any dumb mid-20s guy would do. And it's like, I quit the job at the phone company, not realizing, okay, now I don't get qualified for mortgages anymore. <laughs> and I told my mom, uh, I'm not going to be a lawyer. I'm going to be a real estate investor. That did not go over well. It still doesn't go over that well. Really? To, but, to uh, this day? My when mom are going to get a real job, if, Michael? If, if I told my mother today that I was going to go to law school, she would be ecstatic. So um, it's kind <laughs> Finally, of a son I can be proud of. <laughs> exactly. So, But anyway, so the next deal, I managed to lose almost all of what I made. Because I realized, okay, well, now I don't have my job and I don't have a paycheck anymore. I have this lump sum, but if I don't get some sort of cash flow and, and keep turning this money over. So I went from buying this home for the long term to now inadvertently getting into flipping, but not really knowing how to flip. And so my next deal was a disaster. I managed to lose almost all of what I made on the first deal. And, you know, my, my mother was all along, she was saying, Mike, get your second degree. You can always go into real estate after, but get that second degree so you have something to fall back on. I said, Mom, I've got this. And so when I managed to lose a lot of the money I made, I didn't tell my mother that part. 
And I also didn't want to tell her she was right. So I knew I had to figure something out because I did not want to leave the real estate industry. And so I took the little money that I had and basically hired somebody who was already successfully flipping homes in, in the market I was in and basically said, listen, I want to invest in your next deal. And I don't expect like a full return, but what I would like is to watch how you do it, learn from you, have you explain what you're doing or why. And then uh, if I had not done that, I'm pretty sure I would not be here on this podcast right now, maybe talking about law, but certainly not real estate. So, uh, so anyway, that was kind of the start of my career. Now, this was in the 90s? Is that uh, right? Well, I started in, I think it was like 89. Okay. So, uh, so I started actually in the late 80s. And then uh, I started to get successful in the 90s. And, and you know, since then, you know, this, it's been an incredible journey that's taken me to so many. Anyway, none of this stuff was on my radar. So a lot of times people think I had this big master plan when I first started. It's like, I'm going to do this. And then I'm going to do this. It's like, no, it's just all been very organic. And, and you know, I've had my ups and downs. And along the way, you kind of course correct. You set the GPS for a certain place. And it's never that straight path. But along the way, you course correct. And somehow you end up in a really good spot if you stick with it. And if you're, you don't want to tell your mom that you screwed up. And, you, and so you're forced to go forward. But yeah, it would have been so easy early on just to say, okay, maybe I'm not cut out for this real estate thing. Maybe I should go to law school, but I could never tell my mother she was right. So, uh, so here I am as a result of that. Now, Owen, I feel like that. So first off, you're like, I think you're the third Canadian that we've interviewed on here. Wow. Okay. We had, yes, we had, Ash, we're slowly Ash, taking over the world. We, I don't know if you know that. We had Ashish and then we had Jamil yep. and, yeah. uh, and both of them super successful, uh, real estate investors. And I believe that both of them also said, that their parents expected them to be lawyers or, oh, or doctors too. I think that's a key. If you want to be successful, make sure your parents are pushing you into law and, and medicine because that is a key. And also defy them and say, no, mom, I've got this. Because that, honestly, that's why I'm still here because I, I just could not tell my mother she was right, especially in my mid-20s. <laughs> Couldn't do it. Yeah, there's there there is a significant <laughs> amount of shame in doing that. <laughs> exactly. So I understand the avoidant uh, nature of it. But what – um so you got – as the uh, – the the poetic Mike Tyson once said, "Everyone has poetic. a plan yeah. until they get punched in the face." Could you see it like him? So, <laughs> no, I'm not doing that. I'm not making fun of people's speech impediments, dentalists. <laughs> not again, except, anyway. except for me. Yeah, except for, <laughs> except for Ted. <laughs> We're gonna pick on Ted Day. <laughs> <laughs> that was good. Uh, so you uh, hit a road, uh, a bump in the road here with your next transaction. Lost a bunch of money. Um, did, were you kind of like, whoa, wait a minute? Well, uh, was, and, and went to your friend that had the the flipping successful flipping business. So what happened then? Well, first of all, I think it was really necessary to get knocked down because imagine every deal went well and everything was smooth. I would have been a really big jerk. Uh, so I needed that humbling lesson. Mm -hmm. I need, I need to be knocked down just to, um, you know, show myself that I don't know it all. I thought I knew it all. I knew nothing. I just got lucky with the timing. I happened to buy at the right time. The market did its thing. There's nothing that I did that caused that property to go up in value. So, um, so I needed that, but yeah, after, after I, I kind of learned the ropes a little bit, um, it was pr still pretty basic. I mean, the stuff that I learned was really basic. It was very traditional you know, um, and transactional, you know, buy a house. Back then it was like save up a down payment, qualify for mortgage or don't save up a down payment if you know the right mortgage broker, uh, qualify for mortgage, buy the property. But then I learned how to add value to a property and how to actually analyze a deal and find good properties. There's a lot of stuff I learned much after that, that had I known, like, for example, 
tax deeds, buying buying distressed properties. I didn't know about that back in the day. I didn't know that existed. As a matter of fact, it doesn't really exist in Canada, those tax deeds. But I've learned a lot of different – that's just one example. But I've learned a lot of different strategies along the way that had I known them back then – you know, I could have bought a lot more properties because I didn't, I didn't know that, well, you don't have to qualify necessarily for mortgage each time. You don't necessarily have to pretend to save up a down payment. I mean, there's a lot of different... <laughs> pretend. <laughs> well, there, there's, there's just a lot of things you learn along the way. So even, even after I did that first uh, deal with my partner, and then I, after that, I, you know, I went on and did stuff on my own, it was still very transactional. And so a lot of people, like I said, come up to me and, and and they think I came out of the womb knowing how to do real estate. This is all stuff that you learn along the way, but you have to, you have to start moving forward to, to start making those mistakes, start learning what you need to do differently. And then as time goes on, you just, you, you start to run into more people. They introduce you to more people. That's why I'm here. Cause I, I met somebody randomly on a, on a marketing cruise who introduced me to Ted yesterday at uh, the event. I, I meet somebody who's from Atlanta says, Hey, you should come speak at my event. So just moving you all, forward. You, you also ran into some of you coached. And I, 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 that was totally that was random. Last from, night? From Mexico. David Bader's girlfriend. What? He he coached. I feel like I'm cheating. Yeah, no. <laughs> uh, no, but but yeah, many, many years ago, she called me up and said, I want to get into real estate, but I don't know how to get started. And I didn't charge her anything. I just, I'm happy to help people. So anyway, uh, randomly yesterday, she comes up to me in the bar. She goes, Mike. And I, and I had no idea who she was because I never met her in person. Or maybe I did an event at one point. But anyway, I didn't remember who she was. And she, goes, and, and she says, you probably don't remember me, but my name is this. And it's like, oh, yeah, yeah. That was quite a few years ago. But randomly in Omaha, here she is. And so you just never know. And so to me, it's all about showing up. And moving forward, just even just a little bit every day and just taking action and you never know where it's going to lead to. And and I'm going to get a little woo woo here, but I think when, when you take a little bit of action and, and you're moving forward and you're, uh, if you have good intentions, I just find the universe puts like the right people, right opportunities on your path. You have to take a little bit of initiative, but I think most of the work is done outside of that. And it's just showing up and, and, uh, I really believe in karma. I think when you help people, it always comes back to a hundred times over. I never do things for that specific reason, but that's just how it works. And so um, anyway, I feel very blessed to be where I'm at today, but I never had any master plan. This was not on my radar. As a matter of fact, I remember when I, when I quit my job at the phone company, I was thinking, man, if I could just make, I think I was making like $38,000 a year back then. If I could just make $38,000 a year and not have to you know, show up at a certain time and go to an office every day, I'd be ecstatic. 38,000 a year doesn't even come close to covering my travel expenses anymore. But <laughs> but that also would be like an 80, 90,000 dollar job now. That's true. But in any case, you know, when when I quit that, I wasn't I I wasn't looking to be a millionaire. I wasn't looking to be super successful. I just wanted to not have to work for somebody else. That was it. You can always count on Ted to just <laughs> make you feel old. Like just when you're feeling uh, good I, I about yourself. Me, I, I already did feel. It's like, uh, well, that was like in 1908. Like so the dollar was worth a lot. <laughs> okay, more when I when I started working <laughs> in 1994 with my first job, my minimum wage was like 375 an hour. So let's put this in perspective. Here. There you go. There you go. <laughs> FYI. I don't I think the minimum wage has ri- risen that much since then, honestly. <laughs> I think it's at 15 now. Is it 15? Yeah. Dang. Well, in 1994, I was three years old. Oh, shut up, Dennis. Oh, we Teddy. hate you. We hate you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. My daughter is born in, you were, my daughter was born in 1995. Anyway. Wow. Okay. So here's a question <laughs> for you. Lane. <laughs> you, you, you buy a few couple single family houses at this time. Are you consistently buying from then till now? Or is it is it something that you're like, hey, I'm adding 
this many houses to my portfolio? And have you expanded? I already know the answer, but have you expanded yeah. into other realms like, uh, you know, multifamilies, commercial, um, you know, a lot of people are doing uh, the sh- the uh, short term rentals or mm. the storage units. Are you what, what's your portfolio kind of look like? Yeah, so now my portfolio looks like a whole bunch of single family homes, mm. and but over the years I have you know I have dived into some multifamily deals. They went well. Uh, I had partners who helped me on those. Um, I've I've done a lot of different things. I've done a lot of different strategies. Short term rentals didn't exist back when I uh, you know in my heyday of getting started, uh, but. You know, I find that sometimes that just sticking with one thing and doing it over and over, every time I jump into something else, it just like seem like, okay, well, these single families work so easy and it's so easy to to delegate, get a good property manager, not have to deal with anything. And for my lifestyle, I, as you know, I love to travel and I don't want to have to be on the phone, putting out fires and dealing with issues all the time. And so sometimes I think our ego says, oh, we got to do something bigger and I've got to do more units and I got to do you know, this big development project. I don't, I don't think I, I think at this point in my life, I just want things to be simple and easy and, and chill. And I've got that. So a lot of times people say, well, why don't you, you know, there's this great opportunity in this other, it's like, I don't need any more opportunities. I'm, I'm good with what I've got. And so now I focus more on, you know, lifestyle, happiness, fulfillment, hanging out with my daughter and grandkids, the traveling. I do a lot of give back stuff. And my focus has changed. I, I, I still love real estate and I'm still very passionate about it. That's why I love to teach other people uh, about it. But I don't really feel like I need to do more bigger things to, to you know, there's no, there's no big need for me to do that at this point. Because a lot of times, the reason I bring it up is because a lot of times as you grow, at least the people we interview are generally like, I'm looking for something that's less hands-on. And generally, everybody says that the single families are more hands-on. With oh, the no. amount of travel that you're doing, you're saying you've pretty much been traveling for 12 years. You live in hotel hotel, but you mm. but you are managing the asset that everybody says takes the most time. I, th- I think it's actually really easy because it's very like when you have uh, you know commercial projects when you have when you're doing development when you're doing you know big multifamily projects when things go wrong they usually need your input. When a single family home if a fridge breaks I don't need to know about it I can just tell my team as long as you empower your team to make decisions for you then it's really really easy and they're they're small decisions. Now, obviously, if somebody dies in one of my units or there's a fire or flood, yeah, I need to know about that. But anything else, it's like, okay, well, you know, it needs a new appliance. Well, you don't need to get my permission. I'm never going to say the tenant doesn't need a fridge. Get them a new fridge. And so I just find it uh, super easy to delegate, automate, and take myself out of the equation. And I, you know, I've got a couple of hundred units, and literally it takes up in – a, in a typical week, it takes up zero of my time. And so unless unless something major uh, happens, but that that's very few and far between. Do you get like a report that you review at in, on a quarterly uh, or yearly basis where you're kind of like overseeing like, hey, what's my cash flow? What's things are looking at? Am I going to – and then do you look at like refinancing them or do you try to pay them off or what's kind of your, your model there? Well, back, back in the olden days, I was a lot more strategic because obviously I didn't have the you know resources I do today. And so it's like, okay, well, now's a good time to do the burn, take some cash out, use that to buy more properties. These days, I don't really do that. Um, I don't really, I mean, I get reports that I never look at, but I have other people on my team that do. And I, you know, to me, the measurement is what's at my bank, what's in my bank account at the end of the month. And if I see that, you know, it's a lot less than it should be, then I'm going to start asking questions, but that never, that never happens. And I think a lot of it, you know, a lot of us, uh, especially entrepreneurs and real estate investors, we have a really big hard time with, with trust and giving up control. Mm-hmm. And I did too, for the longest time. Uh, I, th- I think that every entrepreneur 
goes through three phases. If they're lucky, they get to the third phase. But the first phase is solopreneur, where you do everything yourself. You don't really trust anybody. And it's understandable because for us, that's our baby. You know, whatever, whatever it is that we built, whatever business it is, whether it be real estate or otherwise, that's our baby. And we don't just let anybody touch the baby. But then we get to the point where, you know, we're, we're overwhelmed, we're worn out. And then we get to that second phase. And uh, I call that the babysitting phase. We bring somebody on or sometimes more than one person, but we micromanage them. We need to know every little thing that's going on, every detail. Uh, oh, I, I want to know every single person that's late with rent. And, and you're dealing with things that you can't really control. And so, but that's just a trust issue. And then you get to the third phase and I call that the freedom phase. And if you can actually get to that phase where, you know, you have your team that's looking out for you. And of course you have to look out for them in return or they're not going to look out for you. But if you take really good care of the people on your team and incentivize it for them uh, and they're doing a good job, then you get your freedom to do whatever you want. And I'm luckily I've made it to that phase, but it takes a long time to get from even phase one to phase two, where you have to bring people on your team. But at some point you hit that brick wall. And if you don't have somebody else, you know, if you're already working 12 hours a day, you can't, you, you know, at some point you want to sleep and maybe have a relationship and maybe take care of your health and do other things besides just work, maybe even sleep. So um, at some point you hit that brick wall where you have no choice. You reluctantly go into that second phase, but it's very hard to go to the third phase because the third phase is not mandatory. The second phase is mandatory. If you want to scale, getting to that third phase is not mandatory. You can stay in that second phase forever, but you're not going to be you're not going to have the lifestyle that you want. You're going to lose your time. Well, I'm sorry that I've taken so much sleep from you the last three days. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's all worth it. You know, it's it's all it's all good. You touched on something there that I I think is is re a really key point with all of this, and it's you you mentioned going from the first phase to the second phase. You don't stop micromanaging until you establish trust. Yes, and I think that is something that isn't really verbalized a lot with mm, people true. that go through that struggle. True. And that is true because like, I I'm just going to give myself as an example here. I recently hired an assistant after not having one mm -hmm. for my whole real estate career. And I've been doing this 18 years. And, um, the reason for that is not that I didn't think anyone could do it as well as I could or, or whatever, because that's a thing too. Of like, course. Absolutely. That's a huge thing. But it's more like, I just looked at it as this huge amount of this big block of work that would be involved with training and babysitting uh, a person to mm -hmm. get them up to speed with how I like to do things myself. And now that I've established some trust with her, um, like I'm like, go, I don't want to know anything. Like ju just tell me when it's done That's or right. tell me if you have any problems. Exactly. And it's so freeing exactly. to get to that point, but it does take a leap of faith, a and B uh, it takes investment in training the person properly to be able to handle tasks in the way that you want them done mm -hmm. or give them, empower them to be able to come up with different ideas that True. might be better than the way you were doing 100%. Them. Because you get stuck in your own methods and processes mm -hmm. because they work fine for you. Exactly. But it doesn't necessarily mean that they're optimal. And. You know, it's like, uh, I made this analogy before, but it's like you go to a hotel room, you don't really want to turn the black light on, but if you did, <laughs> it would be really <laughs> illuminating on what's going on in there. Yeah. And that's a lot of times also where I think people get stuck mm. in their own business because they don't want that. Maybe there's the fear of embarrassment because maybe they feel like the perception of them is one where 
I'm big and I'm successful and I know how to do a lot of things. Whereas if you actually showed somebody the shit show behind the curtain, <laughs> they may be like, what? This guy doesn't know what he's doing. I think there's some of that too. What do you, what do you uh, think absolutely. about that? I agree with you, but I also think that sometimes you'll get people that already have better systems than you. That, and, and so you don't need to hire somebody, you know, who's never done, you know, what you, what you need uh, them to do. So for example, you know, my main assistant, she lives in, in Frankfurt, Germany, and she oversees a bunch of people that I've never met before in the Philippines, for example, in India. Um, but she, one of the things she does is I have an email list and she emails, she writes emails for me and English isn't her first language. And so when she first started uh, working with me, she didn't really understand the words that I would pick. But I, so she would, uh, at first she would send the emails to me. I would edit them and say, okay, do it more like this. Now she does, she, she can imitate me better than I can imitate me. So, so for some things, it just takes a little bit of time. Uh, for other things, there's people that already are, are better than you. She already, uh, was used to delegate from her previous job. She was used to delegating to people in the Philippines. I've never done that before. So I've never met these people. They only know me because they, some of them are editing my videos. That's how they know me. They've never met me in person. So there's ways to get people, uh, to work for you that have already, they've already got better systems than you. They've already got the know-how. When you have your dream team, quite often that's the case. I mean, who am I to go hire a property manager and then tell him how to do his job? If he's a good, if he's the right property manager, he already knows how to be a, a property manager. So even though I used to do it myself, which I, I don't recommend for anybody, by the way, um, and I learned a few things along the way, I might say, hey, this is one of the things that really worked well for me. You might want to add that to what you're already doing. But if you have the right person, you don't really need to train them unless you're doing something really like, for example, one, one of my um, strategies, as I mentioned earlier, is I like to do tax deeds and I do that in Houston, Texas. But so I had to hire somebody and train them to actually go to the auction for me. And that's not something you can just, uh, you know, that's not something that shows up on somebody's resume. Hey, I go to the auction and bid for other people. That, so that was something that was created. But 99% of the jobs out there, property manager, contractor, assistant, all these things already exist and there's people that are already really good at it. And we just have to give up a little bit of the ego because sometimes that gets in the way. And also I agree hundred percent, you know, we often feel like, Oh, nobody can do this as well as me. What I've learned over the years as I brought people on my team is man, they do that so much better than I ever did. So once you come to that realization that there's other really talented people on this planet and some of them have way better gifts and we're all gifted in certain ways. But we're, we're not gifted in every way. And so there's people that are better than us in a lot of the things that we do on a daily basis. And if you can bring that, those right people on board and build your dream team, after a while, you just don't, you don't even think about it. It just runs itself. Well, real quick, what exactly does your dream team consist of? Like, who do you have and what do they do? Yeah, so there, there's, uh, so for example, I mentioned uh, Eva in Frankfurt. She oversees, she does a lot of the marketing. She oversees a lot of uh, the team uh, in other parts of the world. And, uh, I've empowered her to, if you need to hire somebody, don't, you don't need to, you know, get my permission. If we need a new logo for something or new website, just do it. I don't, I don't need to know. I know she's not frivolously building websites for, for no reason for me. I'm not worried about that. Uh, then I've got, uh, some of my sales team and they, uh, one of the, uh, one of my main guys, his name is Sam. He's Canadian, but he's kind of like me. He's a, a digital nomad. And he bosses me, you know, the culture of my company is they boss me around because I'm, I'm like the guy who holds everything up. So Sam reached out to me um, around December and goes, okay, Mike, I can't actually do anything else until you get me some more video content. And I'm supposed to shoot video content when, as I'm traveling the world and I very rarely remember to do it. So he, he said, okay, in January, 
Uh, and he's like I said, he's a nomad as well. He goes, I'm going to be in this place, this place, this place. You need to come meet me and we're going to shoot a, a year's worth of videos over a week. And then after that, I won't bug you for the year. So I went to Puerto Vallarta. We shot like 200 videos, which he's turned into like a thousand shorts. Dang. And, uh, but I'm always the bottleneck in my own business. Yeah. And so when you have the right people, you don't need to tell them what to do. They tell you what to do. And that's exactly what happens. Uh, then I've got my, you know, my team on the ground. We sell turnkey uh, properties in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, you know, I've got obviously a lot of contractors and, and acquisitions people, but they're all self-sufficient. Uh, I've got people that oversee all of that. So the, you know, my biggest recommendation for real estate investors is try to take yourself out of the equation, you know, as early as possible. And, you know, I was talking to somebody last night after the event and he said, well, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really handy and I have a hard time delegating, uh, getting the work done because they don't do it the way I do it. And I go, well, you're costing yourself money because your job as you should be the visionary for your business and you should be the person finding the properties or delegating to somebody to find properties for you, not the guy painting the homes. That's not where the money is. And so even though you're going to uh, emotionally have a hard time because that's your expertise, watching somebody else do it, not as well as you might do it. You're costing yourself money because you can't get over that. And so, uh, but yeah, there's, there's people way more talented than us. We, we, uh, all have gifts, but none of us are, uh, have a gift that nobody else on the planet has that I'm aware of. So, um, I've, I've learned to deal with that. Uh, I wanted to ask you this. So you have, uh, it sounds like a pretty decent sized team, uh, around the world. You've got different businesses that you're involved in different asset classes and you travel a ton. Um, I have over the years gotten to know a lot of different entrepreneurs and a lot of people that have started a small business and then have grown it mm -hmm. and maybe sold it, maybe kept it. But I've seen on a lot of occasions where you have someone that is a visionary and has empowered their uh, key you know, stakeholders in their business to make decisions for them. Mm -hmm. But then you have like employees that kind of like throw shade at the owner because or like, Oh, they're never here. They don't know what's going on in the business. And does that ever reach you? Like, does that ever affect not, you at all? Not, uh, you, know, you know what I mean by yeah. that? Like people are like, well, they're never here. You know what I mean? They, they, they basically are saying like, well, you don't give a shit about your business. So why should I not really? Cause they do know that I do care a lot about my business. They do know that uh, it's very important to me and they know that I'm living my best life. And that's why they have, why they have, uh, why they work for me because, mm -hmm. uh, but I don't, I don't think we have that in, in uh, the business because everybody, like I said, my main sales guy, I don't say, oh, you have to go to an office every day. If you want to be a nomad, I totally get it. You should be a nomad as long as you get the work done. I don't care where you do it. My, my team uh, loves me in that I don't micromanage them anymore. I don't talk to anybody on my team on a very, like on a daily basis. My team sometimes checks in with me. It's like, okay, well, you know, uh, when are you going to do your next live event or, you know, what do you need? You know, but I, I don't give them to-do lists every day. And so they like the freedom and my, you know. A lot of the people that work for me worked for somebody else before, and sometimes they were working concurrently. They were working part-time for me, part-time for somebody else, and nobody's ever left me to go back to where they were before. So um, I think they have a lot of freedom and because freedom is my favorite word, and, and it's the most important thing for me. And so I respect that they want their freedom too, but not everybody wants to do with their freedom what I do. Not everybody wants to be a full-time traveler. Some people want to have families and some people want it, you know, everybody's got different things that make them happy. So, uh, so no, I don't think anybody feels that way. And they know that, you know, we have a very open policy, uh, the, the people that represent me in different facets of my business, 
they know if there's something important, they can reach out to me. I tell them not to reach out to me like unless it's important. But if there's something that we could be doing better, I'm totally open to hearing it. And and they know that I, you know, I'm past that phase where I need to know everything going on. And I think they like that because they have a ton of freedom. Now you mentioned that you I like how you describe kind of the three I guess phases of a real estate investor's trajectory, or really you could make any an entrepreneur. Argument. Really. Yeah, I was going to say you could yeah. really make the case for any entrepreneur. Yeah. But I think um, so. I wanted to just ask this, and I don't know the right way to do it, but I'm thinking of um, early on when I when I started, and I would assume you were maybe shared this, and and maybe you as well, Ted and Denless. But when you first get started, I think everybody kind of has. If you're really into real estate, you, you're kind of a deal junkie. So mm-hmm. you're really in it and you see the potential with it. So the the ones that have the bug uh, or that, that are obsessed with it are the ones that I, I I feel if you're obsessed with real estate, you will eventually get to the of third course. level or the second level or whatever. But you're yes. not going to just buy one or two. No, like, no, that happens. doesn't happen. No. Um, but I'm curious now that you're not as involved in the in the day to day or kind of like the, the grind and and maybe you know, deal flow and looking at deals mm-hmm. and all that. And I, I think back to when I was always really excited about that. Yes. Like I would lay awake thinking about a deal that I was going to go look at the next day or, you know, an offer that I had pending out there that, you know what I mean? So that, that excitement. And, and now I think after you establish success and a track record and you have stacked up some assets to where you start spinning off some income to where it allows more freedom to explore other opportunities that you have. And then you get to a point where people start asking you advice all the time. And then you're like, well, we call it, we call it picking your brain. (laughs) But then you get to a point where you are able to monetize that as well and transition into not just somebody that's successful in that line of work, but also gives advice. Now you're coaching and you have a mastery course and all that. So where I'm going with this is, do you feel it's more satisfying now? Uh, now that you are not in the day to day, or did you feel like your body of work when you were in it every day was more satisfying? Yeah, that's a great question. And you know, at the time you got to remember when I started, I was 23, now I'm 57. So a lot has changed in my life, uh, outside of the real estate. Um, so starting off as a 23 year old single guy, and then, you know, eventually getting married, having a daughter now grandkids, uh, a lot has changed in, in my personal life. And, so a lot of the things that I used to do and, and they, they would excite me. I still get excited, you know, watching, especially watching my students go and succeed and, and going to events like, uh, like Ted's last night and watching, you know, meeting these people that are some of them just starting out and it brings back great memories. And I, I love, there's never a day in the last 34 years where I felt like I hate what I do. Like every day I'm, I'm just grateful and, and I feel just so blessed that I get to do what I do. But, you know, as time has gone on, uh, you get to doing, you know, bigger things. And, and, um, to me at a certain point, uh, there's other priorities that start to take place. Like for, for example, there's never going to be a day where I'd rather go driving for dollars and hang out with my grandkids. That's never going to happen when I didn't have grandkids driving for dollars was fun and going and, and, you know, searching for those deals. It gives you that dopamine rush. Now I don't need that. Like these days it's like, I love to, I do a lot of philanthropy and I find that very uh, satisfying. I love to travel. I have the things that light me up. Now, if I ever, for whatever reason, if everything for, for whatever fell apart, I ho- I don't foresee that happening, but if it did and I had to go back to doing what I used to do, I could do it. And, uh, I'd find it a lot easier than back then. Cause now you know, I've got so much more experience, but do I want that? No. Like I said, there's other things that, I, that have taken the place of that, that excite me and, um, you know, just different priorities, but 
but I still love like watching students get deals and watching them put things, put it together. And there, there is something very satisfying about that, but I don't need to go back and, and, you know, go back to, you know, being in the trenches again. Uh, but if I have to, it's, it's not, it'd be a lot different. They said, Mike, you gotta go back to the phone company, to that cubicle every day, nine <laughs> to five, that. No, thanks. If I, if I had to go back to doing real estate deals, I could do it if I had to. That's kind of like the natural progression though, as we grow, right? We, I mean, we all of us have changed what we do from when we started. None of us really want to go back to what we were, were in the beginning because it, it, it was a lot of work. <laughs> yeah, but it, n- it never felt like work to, yeah. to me. It never, it never really felt like work. It was always fun. It was time consuming, I should say. It was time consuming, but I always compared it. And I've always had gratitude because I remember before that working for the phone company and I didn't hate it. I was, I was grateful to have a good paying job. And that gave me the, you know, the ability to get to where, to this step, there's always another level got me to this level. And then before that I was a starving university student with no income and just bills and, you know, staying up all night studying or drinking and pretending to study or whatever I was doing back then. Molson ice. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Nice Canadian content. Canadians don't really drink that, but anyway, um, Anyway, um, but, you know, so I've always been grateful when I had the job at the phone company, I was grateful. Hey, I'm actually, I have a paycheck coming in and I can afford more Molson Heist. And then, uh, you know, so when I got to the point where I was in the trenches doing deals, looking for deals, it was, it was gratifying. I loved it. It's like, Hey, I'm my own boss. I'm, I'm outside a lot of the day. I think I heard you open a Molson Ice. Um, Nobody else did though. This is a com- brought to you by Molson Canadian. Um, but so I think, hey, wait, hang on. Is Molson Ice the equivalent of PBR well, in the I, U.S.? I don't even know if they make Molson Ice anymore. <laughs> no, that, they, there's Molson. Molson's are, are Molson and Labatt are the two biggest. Labatt, Labatt Blue, uh, which it'd be like your Budweiser. Yeah, and, and yeah, no, it's not. Molson Ice isn't as bad as PBR. So I had so. In, in college, uh, I had four Canadians on my baseball team, and they were all from uh, Saskatchewan. Oh my god! Yeah, so. I, I've been to Saskatchewan. I've been to Saskatchewan too, but have. I didn't think any Americans had ever heard of Saskatchewan. Yeah, there was so. it was Saskatoon and uh, and Moose Jaw. Oh, Moose Jaw. Okay. Yeah, and I've been to Saskatoon also. And one wow. of the guys, see, I've my, been to Canada, buddy. Wow, this is good. I'm not, I, I'm not stereotyping here, but the one. <laughs> Wow, this guy was weird. He was uh, the only person I've ever met in my life that could actually pee over his own shoulder. Like he Ouch. had, he I'm had a really strong stream. Yeah, we were, you know, it was in college. Or a big hose. <laughs> <laughs> and they drank. Uh, I'm pretty sure they drank Molson ice. Maybe back in those days. That's not. I don't even know if we have that still. But anyway, Molson is a very big brewery. But you got to come in and have our micro brews. Like, don't drink that stuff. Okay. That's what, right. what would ever make you want to try to pee over your shoulder? I don't know. But he, he did it. He then did you don't it. have to walk. He did in it the, on a bed. You like nobody believed him, and he's like, "No, yeah, it's happening." And then he probably drank a bunch of Molson ice, and I mean, then I proved might, it. I'd like to think that we all could do that if we tried. I, I couldn't. No way. Nope. I'm not going to attempt that. I'm yeah. not going to attempt that. I mean, I'll delegate know. it. I'll delegate it to the I'll moose. Delegate it to the to my <laughs> VA. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there you go. That'd be really <laughs> weird if she could. <laughs> uh, come on, Ted. Keep this professional. Um, so, Mike, now that you um, ha- like your story is amazing. I mean, the fact that you're able to travel as much as you have and you're not burned out on it. Like we, I, I was asking you before we started recording. You're, you've been everywhere. I mean, you've been to Egypt, London, uh, Iceland. Uh, I mean, this is just in the last month. Yeah, like, no, I've, I've done 83 countries, and um, I never get sick of it because I, I learned something just meeting locals. And I, I'm not just doing uh, you know all the touristy things. I like to hang out with locals. I like to see you, – you get so much – 
um, gratitude uh, from just seeing how other people live, what their life looks like, and and just how lucky we are that we happen to be born in this part of the world where everything's abundant. And just see some of the challenges they deal with. Uh oh, we're so abundant. You're wasting your old fashioned, spilling it all. Over Did you really horrible. spill your old fashioned all over yourself? That was that, most nice. It'd be sacrilegious. That, that, but old fashioned, uh, we can let. Well, that. there's a gigantic <laughs> orange wedge in here that like like slipped and hit me in the. There we go. Sorry, but okay. yeah, but technical. I, I also find it really interesting that you know I, I do a lot of when I'm in this part of the world. I like to go to masterminds and seminars, and a lot of times when I'm at a mastermind, trying to figure out well, how do I get you know my business to the next level. I don't, I don't really get the clarity. And then suddenly I'm like in Costa Rica, walking through the rainforest, not even thinking about my business. And I get this epiphany. So I think, I think a lot of good stuff happens when you, you get back to nature, for example. Uh, but you just learn a lot from just seeing how other people uh, live, what their life looks like on a, on a daily basis. And, you know, as I mentioned, I like to do a lot of uh, philanthropy. So I went to these islands called Vanuatu, which are, are between uh, Australia and New Zealand, and they had got hit by a hurricane. I was already going to Fiji and uh, New Zealand, and I thought, well, we're there. What if we raised some money and brought them some water filters? They had no clean drinking water. Pardon me, Fiji uh, on that one? Uh, pardon me, Fiji, Fiji water. water. Fiji yeah. water, sponsored by Fiji water and Molson Ice. <laughs> um, so, but, hey, we can always hope. But, but when you go to a place like that, though, where there's no no clean drinking water, and you get home and, and you lift a tap and magically clean water appears, like you can't not be grateful for that after you've seen this. And so I, I just keep learning, and I, I think a lot of my success has come from just the open mindedness you get from uh, doing the travel. I, I never, I, ne- I honestly never get sick of it. But I'm also on, on my own schedule. Like I, I usually buy one way tickets, and I stay for as, you know as long as I feel like I. I was just in Iceland, and they were celebrating because it was like in the '60s, and after them was a like a heat wave, and they were like running around half naked. Uh, and I needed to get somewhere hot. So after a certain number of days, I was there for like a week. It's like, okay. And I, I went to Spain and next thing you know, I'm on a beach where it's hot. And so um, it's pretty hard to get sick of that when you're, when you're kind of putting yourself in your happy place every day and you're not forced to, if I was doing it for work and somebody, uh, you know, said, okay, well, this is your job. You got to go to this place this day and this place that day. That's different when you're doing it on your own schedule and going where you want to go. It's pretty hard to, to not be grateful for that. But if I ever got sick of it, I still have the option. I didn't burn any bridges. I could easily move to Omaha, hang out with you guys, and drink uh, old fashions all day. If you know, so that that could happen too. So we if, don't drink them all day, just, you know. We just have only during podcast. Yeah. Okay, that's fair. <laughs> if if somebody had a gun to your head and they said you have to pick the top three places, oh my god, that you have been, what would they be? That is really tough um, because I like different places for different reasons. And that's why I can't stay still. But I think if I had to live in one place, um, Costa Rica is one of my favorites just because it feels like 20 different countries in one. Like in the same day, you could literally go to the rainforest, the ocean, mountains, volcanoes. Uh, like it's just got a lot going for it. Good, um, good, good friend of mine has said the same thing. And they have an mm, amazing place out there and they Airbnb it out. Oh, uh, nice. And it's up in the cliffs and the mountains and it's a private community and they just, they go there about every two or three months. Uh, a, I find it so relaxing. You wouldn't know them, but uh, just a personal they sound, friend. They made up. They're, they're made they're up. Insurance he doesn't they're, really they're, they're insurance people. They're insurance people. Oh, okay. Marty oh, McGuire. Well, got it. Send them away. But, no, but so that, that would be one of them. I, I really um, enjoy Italy for much the same reason. Like every region has a different, uh, Kind of different vibe, different flavor. Uh, plus, the food's amazing. Uh, I'd get very fat if I lived in Italy. And uh, where else? I really, I really like Thailand. It's it's a uh, the people there are just super uh, nice. I like the beaches. I like um, 
there's nature. It's also, I, I think the places if I had to settle down are places where really, I don't feel like I'm settling down because there's so much diversity there. It's not all the same. So, yeah. Well, hey, if uh, since this is a real estate podcast here, uh, do you mind if I uh, pick your brain no on, real estate uh, questions, on an please. aspect of This yeah, is the section we call <laughs> Pick Your Brain. No, we'll pick never, have, brain. never have that, that section. Ten. Pick never. Your Brain. <laughs> I will quit. <laughs> I quit, too. I will boycott. <laughs> See? Mike's with me. You, well, you, depends I, on how many old I times. used your words, man. Mm-hmm. Uh, they and were it, said in, in uh, sarcastic fashion. Welcome <laughs> to the section Pick Your Brain. <laughs> anyway, um, let's talk tax liens. I think you're the first, or tax deeds, as tax you mentioned. Deeds. So give us an overview of what, what are they and, okay. and how did you even get involved in that crazy cryptic world of yes. so, tax sales? So tax liens and tax deeds are often uh, considered the same thing by people who don't know what they're doing. So make sure you know the distinction. Uh, tax lien is – tax liens and tax deeds are both – they solve the same problem. The counties – uh, need the property tax money to pay their police department, keep the schools open, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. When they don't get that money after a certain amount of time, uh, they need to do something to recoup that, that cash because they can't tell their chief of police, hey, we'll pay you when, uh, you know, when Ted pays his tax bill, <laughs> then we'll, we'll pay you you're until screwed. then. Uh, you're screwed. <laughs> you're not ever going to get paid. So they can't do that. So eventually they, uh, they put the home up for, in the case of a tax deed, they create a, what's called a, a tax lien certificate in most cases. And this will vary from county to county. But imagine Ted doesn't, he's going to get something in the mail saying you owe without, actually in Nebraska, but you owe $10,000 on July 1st. <laughs> I see what you did there. And um, if you don't pay, then we're going to assess a 20% penalty. So now July 1st comes and goes. He hasn't paid his $10,000 bill. He now owes 12,000 bucks to the government and they continue to bug him. Unbeknownst to Ted though, uh, in a lot of cases, they'll create a tax lien certificate. And so myself as an investor, I could go pay that 10,000. The county is going to continue to bug Ted to pay. And when he finally pays, I'm going to get a check in my mailbox for $12,000. So that's pretty cool. It's very hands-off, very, very uh, passive. And the county's doing all the heavy lifting. And a matter of fact, in most in most cases, you're not actually allowed to contact the homeowner. You can't. You're not allowed to do that. So the county does all that for you. But I prefer tax deeds, and that's a step up from there. So same situation. He hasn't paid his ten thousand dollar bill, but instead of me buying a certificate, I'm actually going to the auction to buy his home. And when if if I'm the successful bidder in most cases, and be very careful, I, that's why I use the word in most cases because this doesn't always happen. But in most cases, any mortgages are going to get wiped out because the government's going to send notice to the mortgage holders. Anybody who's on title is going to get notice, and they have the first right to uh, to pay off the lien to protect their their uh, uh, mortgage or, or whatnot. Okay, uh, real. I'm going to stop you there real quick. Okay. So Ted owes ten thousand dollars. Okay. He's behind. Yep. And you're saying nice that point, the owner of the tax lien certificate has now the right to foreclose, depending on the state they're in. Okay. So the now, okay. So in, in the case of tax, let's go back to tax liens for a second. Okay. So what happens is 98% of the time, Ted's not going to lose his home over 10 grand, or in this case, 12 grand now. He'll, bar, he'll find some. He'll find a way to pay yeah. it. And then they're going to send you a check. If I know he, people. Just so you he, know. he knows some people. Yeah. He knows some people. <laughs> he knows a guy who knows a guy. You know what I'm saying? But uh, I thought you were Canadian, not New York. You know, you got to improvise. He, he definitely looks more like a New Yorker. Right. He does. <laughs> I don't know. I'm a weird Canadian. Hold but that, anyway, that uh, after a certain amount of time, and this is called the redemption period. After a certain amount of time, 
Ted no longer has the right to redeem his property. And so it might be two years, three years, four years, one year, depends on the county. And then at that point, as a person who has that tax lien certificate, you can then foreclose and get his home. Now, that happens very infrequently that you'll actually get a home that way. You will get some uh, some money. But the the you know the thing I don't like about tax liens is that most of them are for relatively small amounts. Here, here taxes are high. Texas has high tax. There's places with high taxes. So you have to buy a bunch of them to get any yeah, yield, so, yield out of it unless you're able to foreclose right. successfully. And so if you're buying a $1,000 uh, tax lien, even if you're getting 30% uh, return on it, well, who cares? And you have to, you know, take the time. You need to do some due diligence. And the cost of the due diligence in a lot of cases will cost you more than what you're going to make on the tax lien. So there's no point. So then you have the big brother, which is tax deeds. And in this case, they're going to actually put the home up on the auction block. Uh, and, and Ted's example, uh, they're going to list it. It's going to, the starting bid will be $10,000 because that's how far he was behind. All the mortgages are going to drop off because the mortgage companies were uh, alerted. You have, hey, you have the right to pay off his arrears to protect your asset. And if you don't do it, it's going for auction on this day. And then as an investor, I can go to the auction and bid on the property. And, and uh, you know, I picked up properties for as little as 7200 That was my uh, the best one we've done. Uh, but you can get properties for very, very little. But you have to be really careful. I know everybody who's listening to this is going to go run off to an auction. Now, don't do that. There's a lot of things that can go wrong. There's a lot of due diligence you need to do before you ever step foot at that auction. And I've literally witnessed people lose like hundreds of thousand dollars in a matter of minutes because they didn't do their homework. And so, you know, you know, be fun to do is just do like, you know how there's like real estate meetups all the time. And there's like showcases that people do on properties, but I've never seen anybody do a showcase of, hey, meet me at the ta- tax auction. Let's go check it out. And well, I actually do that. On. I actually, before COVID, I was running these four-day events and I take people to Houston, Texas, which is where my favorite auction takes place. And we'd spend two days in the classroom and I teach them all the due diligence steps. And then day three, we'd actually drive around the city, look at these properties, see what they look like in real life. And uh, then I'd explain why they were good deals or not good deals and what it would cost to rehab it, et cetera, if you want it. And then on day four, we'd actually go to the auction together. It was a lot of fun. And then COVID, uh, I was doing it once or twice a year. And then, of course, COVID put a damper on that and I haven't started them up yet. But something I may I may do in the future because I really love uh, teaching this stuff. And this is stuff I wish I knew when I started because I thought, you know, even, even back when I started, homes were still six figures uh, in, in the market I was in. I didn't know you could buy homes for you know, this small amount of money, had I known that, that would have made life a lot easier. So we don't know what we don't know. So I, for a while, go ahead, Ted. I was just gonna say, we should do something like that, though, locally, like go to a, a an auction of some sort put on by the city and invite people to come. You have experience in it, you and your business partner. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I kind of went down the rabbit hole there for a little while with uh, with tax liens, tax mm. deeds, just researching it. There's a, a book written a long time ago called The 16% Solution. Oh, I, yeah. I remember reading that yeah. several times. And then I've gone, I, I have gone, I have bought uh, a, pro- a property. I'm not okay. anywhere near what you have done, but I bought a property that was three years. And um, it was it was just coming up on three years. I found out about it uh, like two days beforehand. Mm, okay. And the tax lien holder had the right to foreclose two mm. days later. Mm. And they um, – so long story short, my attorney reached out to the attorney of this tax lien company because that's all they did. They yeah. just bought tax liens, okay. right? And they said, we just want – we just want redemption. Like we, we, we just want that paid off and we'll recycle. We yeah. don't want the property. And I'm like, well, I don't want, like, I just want the property. Yeah. So we ended up working it out and I, I ended up getting it, paying off like 15 grand in tax lien 
and uh, and then thirty grand to the owner for his equity, and then the house, you know, today is probably worth two hundred fifty grand. But yeah. didn't they change some laws in that recently? Uh, I've been hearing that they're, they're changing it so that the buyer has a little, or the current owner has a little bit more rights in that. Um, it really depends on what county you're in. Most counties, yeah. that's not the case. If because you got to remember, these people have had years. It's not like you're one day late on your on your uh, payment. We're foreclosing on you. No, yeah, they get notices. Like, yeah, they've they been know. getting notices for years. But, and and. Uh, oh, go ahead. No, I was just saying locally in the news, I was just watching something. I don't remember if it was national or local, to be honest with you. But there was some law that just recently passed where the, there was a portion of those profits that actually can go back to the the original owner. Yeah, that I think I think what you're referring to is called an overage. And that's a different that's a different animal. That's yeah. another strategy okay. that most people don't know how to do. And and so uh, there's something that I teach called the trifecta of real estate. And the trifecta is you take so every month. I'm going to, I'm going to talk about Houston specifically because in some places once a year, sometimes it's more often, less often in Houston, Texas, Harris County, every month they publish a list of all the properties going up for auction on, it's always on the first Tuesday of the month. So the the properties are going to go up for on the first Tuesday of the following month. There's a whole list. And what most people do is they look at that list. They figure out, well, most of them don't even know how to do the due diligence, but they look at the list, say, Oh, I like that one. And that's a pretty house. I'll take that one. And then they go bid at the auction and that's great. If you do that often enough, you will eventually get a property. But a much better strategy is to me, I see that list. And one of the things that I teach my students is that as a real estate investor, we're really problem solvers. We get paid to solve other people's problems. Most people don't have a whole lot of financial literacy. They run into trouble and they need somebody to help them. They just don't know how to get out of the messes they get themselves into. And so that list is a list of people that need our help as problem solvers. And so I would reach out to them back in, uh, during the last recession, I had a business called foreclosure fixers and I would actually, uh, reach out to these people instead of sending postcards that say, we buy homes, we buy ugly homes, we'll pay cash for your home. I, I actually took the time to learn the foreclosure laws. I hired an attorney to teach me the foreclosure laws inside and out. And I sent out flyers saying I can help stop the foreclosure. And that gets a much different response rate than when you say we buy homes. So, um, but I would actually go and the people that would reply to this ad, uh, there's two types of people. Number one is you get people, sometimes bad things happen to good people and maybe, you know, they got sick and they couldn't work for a while. They got behind on, on their payments or they got a divorce or whatever the case may be. And these are people that ran into trouble. Now they're back on their feet again, but they just can't afford the arrears and they can't stop the foreclosure. So they can afford the payments though. And so for people like that, I would go in and often pay off their arrears. Obviously I, I would charge interest. Uh, and, uh, I'm the only person who's, who's ever going to loan money to somebody who's in foreclosure, but I would, and I would help them stay in their home if I, if I knew they could afford it. But then there was a second type of person that would call me. And these are people that are chronically bad with money. Like they always have to have the nicest. I always used to joke because when I collected my own rent back when I used to do my own property management, my tenants always had a nicer car than me, better TV, bigger TV, better always stereo, a bigger TV, always a bigger TV. Yeah. <laughs> they had way better stuff than me, but yet they couldn't afford their rent. And so, um, but anyway, there's people like that. And those people, you're not going to loan the money because they're going to burn through it. They're never going to pay you back. And for people like that, I'd, I'd do what I'd call give them a soft landing. And what I mean by that is instead of them losing their home to the auction, I would buy it. I'd make sure they had money for moving expenses, for you know damage deposit, several months rent, food, and I give them a little bit of advice on how to rebuild their credit. Sometimes I put them in one of my less you know less expensive property than uh, what they were in that was more affordable, and I do a rent to own for them or a lease option. 
and try to help them rebuild. And in return, of course, I'd buy their home, and that's how I could you know afford to, to run my business. I, I remember when I when I uh, started working for the company I work for, DVG, and <clears throat> they managed hundreds of properties at the time we had a program for two years that we put out there and it, we actually reached out to all the renters and at the time we said hey we will teach you how to be a homeowner we'll we'll teach you how to uh, build your credit and we used to rent out these rooms at the regency lodge and we'd get 10 or 15 people and we put invites out to hundreds of, mm. of the current tenants and it was just strictly a program to teach them how to go to the next level mm -hmm. and can't build their lives. But it was every time it was those situations. Cause a lot of times we did home visits too. And it was the larger TV, but, Oh yeah. But I only remember like two or three people actually taking it for real and, and going next level. It was just, it just Most wasn't, people don't. wasn't yeah. part of their passion. I, I remember I had, this is probably six years ago, five, six years ago, maybe seven. I, um, I had a threeplex on like 60th and Walnut area, 60th and center ish. And I had a lady in there. This was an inherited tenant. There were, you know, three of them that were, either non-payers or just like, you know, there it was mismanaged and so forth. So I bought it and I, this lady just wouldn't, she's just not paying. Right. She ended up owing me like $2,000 mm. and her rent was like 450 bucks. Wow. Like, okay. <laughs> so I have to go through the eviction and this and that she was difficult to get out. And finally I get, get there. And of course it was trashed mm. and I see a freaking uh, 80 inch TV oh, box that's two thousand dollars. Wow, exactly, pretty much exactly wow. what she owed me yeah. for rent. And I'm like, Ouch. well, this is not a mystery why people, <laughs> yeah. you know, have bad spending habits end up yeah. in trouble like that. It's just a matter of time. That's crazy. Yeah, so. yeah, you see a lot of crazy stuff. But anyway, but if you own oh, an eighty inch TV, because I mean, like, it is a full, full. I mean, it feels like you're really in the oh, movie. Oh, Ted. Um, <laughs> only so they can watch. I don't own one. By the way, <laughs> so way better in a high def big screen. Big screen. Okay, so Mike, I'm going to ask you this. So <laughs> we we are in a, a town. Omaha is really close to the border of Iowa. So it's Nebraska, Iowa are very, okay. very close by Iowa for the longest time had a 24% yield on their tax liens. Okay. And Nebraska had a 14% yield. Mm -hmm. So both good Iowa clearly superior to pretty much any other state. Why Houston, Texas? Can you uh, explain so, what, what makes that better? Yeah. So you were just talking about tax liens and Houston had, He's just uh, coming from the Iowa guy. Superior. You know? Superior. <laughs> well, it's a fact. I mean, 24% is hard to shake a stick at. You well, know 24 I mean? is definitely better than 14. But the reason I, I prefer Houston, they have what's called a redeemable deed. And if tax liens and tax deeds made a baby, it would be a redeemable <laughs> deed. And what I mean by that, this is getting really down. Uh, <laughs> what, I, what I mean by that is... To me, as a real estate investor, I want to own the property. I don't want like even twenty four percent is awesome, but if it's on a thousand bucks, it's not worth. It. You know, you have to do a lot of them, and sometimes you're going to end up inheriting a property if you haven't done your due diligence. So ima imagine this: imagine you did a tax lien, and after you uh, foreclose and you get this property, you find out that there used to be a gas station on there; it's contaminated. Now you've got the responsibility you've got you just bought yourself a liability mm -hmm. and so you have to do due diligence to make sure whatever you're putting your money on in terms of a lien is something that you might if you have to own it that you want to own and so you have to spend money doing due diligence even though you're very rarely going to own the property and that due diligence quite often will cost you more than what you're going to make even if it's 24 percent. if you go to tax deed like in, in houston you get a redeemable deed 
So what that means, if you're the high bidder at the auction, you get the you are now the proud owner of the property. But even though the the homeowner has years and years and years to bail it out, and they haven't, they still got one more chance in in uh, in Houston, in Texas, and uh, they have a six month redemption period. Meaning after you bought it, they can still come back six months later. If they want to buy it back from you, they have to give you a twenty five percent premium. So if you got the property for ten thousand, they got to give you twelve thousand five hundred. Oh, yes, and. Okay. If you go and fix the roof because it's a necessary, if you put anything necessary into the home, they've got to pay you 25% on top of that. Uh, now, don't go put a $200,000 chandelier in because that wouldn't be considered a necessary expense. But carpet, paint, roof, anything like that, uh, you're going to make 25% premium if they come back and buy it from you. But in the meantime, after you buy the property, you can go rent it, you can live in it. There's even ways you can flip it. That's some of the stuff that I, that I teach because most people say you can't because you have that redemption period. There's ways around that. Uh, but that's why I like Texas because I now own a property. And the worst case scenario is I'm going to make 25% if I've done my homework right. And that's in six months. So you annualize that and that's a lot better than 24%. I feel get. like you just made up the 25% thing just to top my I, I just had to be a Iowa little bit higher. What up, yo? 24.1%. <laughs> no, actually, no, it I, is really 25%. So, uh, quick funny, <laughs> on uh, on your your comment about being unprepared going, going into these uh, auctions, right? So, I know this guy um, that was really excited about, about the whole tax lien process, and he was... Um, Super excited, but really unprepared. He had like the list. Now, I, I don't know if he was like late getting there or mm. he just procrastinated, which is the more likely uh, scenario here, but got to the got to the uh, auction, had no idea what he was bidding on. It was uh -oh. just going around the room yeah, and he's like, oh, OK, time. this one's up. Uh, yeah. I'll, I'll buy it. <laughs> so ended up getting it. And, and it was it ended up being an empty lot mm. that was like five feet wide oh, and like 100 feet long. Wow. Like it's. It's like a like a landing strip yes. uh, that you can't do anything at all yes, with. That happens was, a lot. It was like wedged between a convenience store and a probably Jeez. a strip club or something. I don't know. That happens but a lot. Anyway, yeah, I know. And he's like, he bought two properties that day, and both of them were complete losers. Like he couldn't That's... sell them. You know, he's just like, I don't. I'm probably gonna. <laughs> this is probably going up for auction again because there's no way I'm gonna be able to yeah. sell this to, well, it's unless of, it's to the neighbor. Well, it's funny because at, at when you attend these auctions. A lot of time, like I remember I was at one of the auctions and somebody comes up to me and goes, hey, do you want a free property? I go, what? What do you mean free property? He goes, yeah, you know, I just want to, I'll give you the keys right now. I'm just leaving town. I don't have time to deal with it. And he bought himself something that obviously had a lot of liability attached to it. And he had bought it the previous month at the auction. And now he's just trying to get, make it somebody else's liability. So you have to be really careful. I mean, I, the story you just told, we see that all the time. Or so, somebody buys land that maybe it's normal dimensions, but it's landlocked. And you can't actually get to it unless you have a helicopter. Well, there's no value to that. And so uh, we also see properties. I mentioned earlier, the mortgages get wiped out. But that, that there's exceptions to that. So imagine you buy a property, you think you're getting the smoking deal until the next day, you know, Bank of America calls you up and says, hey, there's a $200,000 mortgage. Uh, how do you plan on paying for that? And now all of a sudden you're really smoking deals, not such a smoking deal. So I see this stuff happen all the time. And so this is probably the most, one of the most dangerous strategies you can do if you don't know what you're doing. There's some stuff you can, if you're wholesaling and you don't really know what you're doing, as long as you put the right clause in your contract, you can get out of it. This, whatever you bought, you're stuck with it. What you see is what you get. And sometimes what you see is, you know, a lot of times, a lot, a lot of, I know you mentioned you read a book. And when I was trying to learn tax deeds and tax liens, like 14, 15 years ago, I read everything I could on the topic and the more I read, the more confused I got because there's so much conflicting and contradictory information. 
So eventually I just had to make myself the guinea pig and try a bunch of things. But one of the things that came up a lot when people were trying to sell me courses was that, oh, you can do this from the comfort of your own home. And they taught you, oh, you just go on Google, look at a picture of the property. Who knows when that picture was taken? Yeah. And that's why when I do my trainings, the four-day trainings, day three is driving around. And a lot of times we'll see something that looked really good in the picture. Sometimes that turns out to be the neighbor's house, by the way. And you have no recourse. If, if it's a neighbor's house in the picture, you buy it, you're signing something when you get your bidder's card saying you agree that you're, whatever you get, you're buying as is, where is, and you have no recourse. So sometimes it's a neighbor's house. Sometimes it looked really good in the picture back when the people were taking care of it. Now it's been vandalized. Sometimes there's smoldering ashes where a home used to be. Uh, so we've seen all kinds of crazy stuff. And so do not do this from the comfort of your own home. Get a team or... Why are you pointing at me? Well, I was just going to say, it sounds <laughs> oh. like it sounds like we might have a, a story in here that would be a good fit for our section that's called Bathroom Break. Bathroom Break. Bathroom Break. Bathroom break.